is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He was the same in practice as he was playing in a NBA game for the championship. If you don't like that, it is brought to you by Roy's Umbrella. I've worked with Roy for years, and trust me, folks, you can count on Roy's Umbrella for a very low rate on your home loan. No tricks, no nonsense, no extra charges at the end. And I'll tell you, Roy has been unbelievably loyal to me, and he's going to treat you like family. He likes to do business the old-fashioned way. He wants to get to know you. He goes face-to-face with his business, and that's why he has been so successful over the years. For all of your home loan needs, just go to roysumbrella.com. That's roysumbrella.com. My guest on today's podcast began his broadcasting career in Danville, Illinois. And not too long after that, he was with the Philadelphia 76ers beginning in 1976. From there, he went to do the Kansas City Kings for a couple of years, then back to Philadelphia in 1982. The Nets for three years, and then he became the radio voice of the Chicago Bulls in 1991. 2008, they moved him over to TV. He has just retired after 29 years with the Chicago Bulls. He estimates that he's done 240 postseason games. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome Neil Funk to the podcast. Neil, great to catch up with you. How are you enjoying retirement? Well, I think everybody in the United States is retired right now. <laughs> Things like that anyway. So, uh, yeah, it's been a little different. Let's put it that way. I I never uh, in my wildest imagination uh, thought that uh, my broadcast career was going to kind of end the way it did. But uh, it is what it is. So uh, retirement's okay so far. We'll find out once the season starts again. Pretty amazing that your broadcast career starts in Philadelphia and you get a chance over the years to watch Dr. J on a nightly basis. And then you fast forward and you see Michael Jordan to win five of his final six championships. That's pretty blessed, my friend. Yeah. And there were there were a lot of other terrific players, you know, along the way, including, you know, like Moses Malone and Charles Barkley and so many. But those two were special, even though. Doc was kind of uh, not at the end of his career, but certainly in the middle part of it uh, by the time he left the ABA and came to Philadelphia. And um, obviously seeing Michael for all those years was uh, uh, there wasn't a bigger treat for me 
uh, in terms of my uh, broadcast career. Speaking of your broadcast career, you grew up in Indianapolis. You go to Syracuse University. Growing up, who did you listen to? Who was somebody that really captivated you? And about what age were you when you thought that maybe broadcasting would be for you? Well, I, I was always kind of a, a radio guy. I mean, even as a, uh, a young guy, I loved, uh, you know, listening to uh, heavyweight fights on the radio. And, uh, you know, I was uh, my my dad was a, a former Indiana University basketball player. So I became a, an IU fan at an early age. And, you know, just, you know, it seemed like every weekend, you know, I was either watching or listening to, uh, mostly listening to an Indiana basketball or football game. You know, you talk about the Big Ten, and I was in Decatur, Illinois from 84 to 87. Mike White was the football coach. Lou Henson was the basketball coach. And I know you for a couple of years, you know, did both basketball and football uh, at Illinois. But I I used to love the atmosphere, the rivalries. um, And I know the SEC for football is great and ACC for basketball over the years. But, boy, in the mid-'80s, for me personally, being in that market covering Illinois, what was that experience for you early in your career doing Illinois sports? You know, that's a, that's a, a good question and uh, an interesting uh, time of my, of my life because I, I really started in broadcasting, as you mentioned, uh, in a smaller market in, in uh, Danville. and So we were just right down the road from Champaign-Urbana, but, that was some of the uh, some of the best times of my uh, broadcast life were doing University of Illinois football and basketball games, and I I, I did them from '76 till '77, really, till about actually earlier than that the first time around. And then when I came back to Chicago, interestingly enough, the athletic director at that time was Ron Gunther, who was uh, a former Illinois football player. He kind of remembered me a little bit when I started doing the Bulls games. I think after my first year in Chicago, he called and asked if I'd be interested in coming down to do Illinois football, and that was a, that was a highlight for me going back to the college campus. And you mentioned it, the atmosphere. I mean, totally different than the uh, pro sports atmosphere. So I had a lot of fun, a lot of fun doing Illinois. When you look back at your career, the early days, was there one individual other than a family member that you point to and go, wow, what a great break that was for me in my career? Somebody that really turned around your fortunes as a broadcaster? Oh, I mean, there were there were a lot of guys. I mean, you know, my first uh, general manager in radio, I mean, I had no, no experience. I, I was, uh, you know, I wasn't part of the broadcast stable at Syracuse, so... I really was uh, hired more as a sales guy, and as, as you know, Grant, when you're in these markets, you're you know it's kind of like you're expected to do everything: sell the sell the time, and then do the commercials and do whatever on air work. I was I was fortunate that the the station in Danville did around 260, I think, uh, games: uh, minor league baseball, University of Illinois football and basketball, and then high school football basketball so I got plenty of experience so the my my first general manager really was the one who who gave me a chance and then uh Irv Kozlov who was a former owner of the 76ers really helped me get the job in Kansas City which kind of stabilized my uh, my NBA career 
uh, the five years I spent in Kansas City were terrific for me. And I think that's kind of where uh, I, I became an NBA broadcaster. You know, you talk about becoming an NBA broadcaster, and I'm looking at your career, and when you land in Chicago – in 1991, you were very well established, uh, you know, as a uh, outstanding NBA announcer. And yet you came in and you were replacing an unbelievably popular guy, Jim Durham, uh, who had just called Chicago's first championship. And if memory serves me correct, he was in a contract dispute and that left the door open for you. Was that, yeah, but, was that difficult? Was, no, but was that difficult replacing a guy that popular in a city as big as Chicago? Well, I, yes and no. I, you know, first of all, Jim and I were really good friends and had been friends uh, from way back in the 70s when uh, he was doing Illinois State and I was doing University of Illinois, and we got to know each other. And then, obviously, he, he got to the NBA a couple of years before I did with the, with the Chicago Bulls. And you're right. He is a wonderful, wonderful, was a wonderful broadcaster, one of the best in the business, one of the best I ever heard, and just a, a terrific person on, on top of that. So th- the thing that made it difficult uh, initially was, was Jim certain that he was not going to come back and pursue this? He was in a, a contract dispute. And I t- actually talked to him on the phone before I uh, before I took the job and, and in a lot of ways kind of asked for his permission to take the job. And if he would have told me no, I probably would have still been in Philadelphia. But he, you know, he said, no, go for it. I'm, I'm moving on. So, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of my career was built on being in the right place at the right time. And you mentioned luck. I mean, sometimes you have more luck in this business than, than other guys who are as talented or, or in some cases maybe even more talented. But the first thing Johnny Kerr told me when I came to Chicago, I asked him the question you asked me. I said, now, how hard is this going to be to replace Jim Durham? And he said, look, just come in, do your job. And, you know, three years from now, four years from now, people will remember Jim, but they're going to know that you're the broadcaster of the Chicago Bulls. So his advice was uh, what I tried to follow. I didn't try to be Jim. I just tried to come in and, and do the games uh, as I knew how. And uh, it, it all worked out. Boy, what a time to be going to Chicago. They just won their first championship. And little did you know at the time that you'd be around for five more. And we all were captivated by the 10-part episode, The Last Dance and the 30 for 30 that we all watched when we were locked in our homes. What was that like being around that dynasty from your perspective? Well, it was it was everything that you saw in The Last Dance, that's for sure. And it that documentary... And the, uh, you know, the way they spaced it out couldn't have come at a better time, I don't think, if you're a sports fan. You know, whether you were a Chicago Bulls fan or a Michael Jordan fan or not, uh, I, I found, uh, and I lived through a better part of all of that, and I found it riveting. I, there was a lot of stuff that, not necessarily I had forgotten, but little incidents that I had kind of stored away and hadn't thought about for a long time, so it kind of brought those back to the surface. You know, for me, it was it was great. I, I think the the one thing I, I took away from it was just in conversations I had with, with people who saw it, that they had a, a greater appreciation for just how hard it is to win multiple championships and to do it in clusters of three-peats 
uh, is almost beyond belief. And then the other thing was, and which I sort of had forgotten, I, I knew about, you know, Michael's greatness. But the one thing that really came back to me when I saw the early footage of him playing against Boston and Larry Bird and playing against Dominique and some of these other guys is just how great he really was. And so I, I think the, the thing that was really nice about that package was that it gave people a chance to see just how good this guy really was. I'll tell you something else. I've said this so many times over my career, 32 years of doing the NBA. My favorite place was the old Chicago Stadium, Neil, and it was the only place in the league that I would take my headset off and take in the atmosphere and the introductions when the Bulls were being introduced to the sellout crowd at the stadium. I used to get chills. I used to literally sit there and and at my broadcast position, Neil, and I used to just shiver. And I'm not kidding you. And I used to tell myself how lucky and how blessed I was to be there at that moment. To me, there was nothing like that anywhere in the league. And it wasn't even close. Yeah. It, well, I mean, and I agree with you, you know, especially in the old stadium. And you, you've been around the NBA long enough to remember that there were some great venues, uh, you know, the Chicago Stadium. And certainly during the Jordan years was was unbelievable. But uh, I can remember early in my career, you know, the old Boston Garden. Oh yeah. Uh, and what I mean, what I was like the first time I walked in there, I'm like, oh my god, this place is a dump. <laughs> and I, and right. I'm like, you know, I'm walking around, and then you know, if you recall, you had to go up. Were you doing the games when you had to go up the catwalk yes. and sure. onto the thing? Sure was. And so at halftime, I would come down to use the uh, restroom. You'd come down and you're down there and there's, I mean, it was packed with people drinking <laughs> beer and smoking and, you know, right. it was, it, I mean, it was unbelievable, but <laughs> right. there were so many places, you know, the first time I went into the old garden and the, and the first time into the Boston garden, and the first time into the Chicago stadium. And I mean, there were, there were just so many great, great venues, the old salt palace in Utah. And there, there were some places that, probably in today's uh, era of uh, sports today, wouldn't have even been suitable for a high school, you know, to play play their games. But, yeah, I, I kind of miss, miss those old days. Did you understand the true magnitude of, of who and what you were watching when you first got to Chicago, seeing number 23 every night on the floor? And, and if not, at what point during your tenure with Chicago? No, really, because, I mean, he just kept it getting better and better, you know? Yeah, I, I, I don't think initially I did. When I, when I came to Chicago, I, I remember talking to guys that, that uh, I mean, I knew Michael was really good, but I had only seen him from afar, you know, in the couple of times a year that Philly played them. And I knew he was, you know, he was a really, really good player, one of the best in the league. But I had no understanding of just how good he was. And I think maybe after my first four or five games, I was like, uh, wow, this is, I was like you. I was like, I, I must, I got to be the luckiest guy in America. I get to watch this every single night, not see him two times a year or four times a year or whatever. I'm going to get to see him every single night. And the one thing that, that struck me early on between Jordan and Pippen, you know, a lot of, a lot of my career was built on being in the right place at the right time. And 
you mentioned luck. I mean, sometimes you have more luck in this business than than other guys who are as talented or, or in some cases maybe even more talented. I knew that I was going to see every night something I had not seen before. You know how there can be a sameness to NBA games sometimes. I knew every night when I sat down, I'm going to see something tonight I haven't seen before. Um, and that was kind of cool. You mentioned that you were a radio guy, and I had the absolute pleasure of doing a lot of the Kings playoff games on radio when they were really good in the early 2000s because the voice of the Kings, Gary Gerald, uh, had a lot of auto racing duties. And in May, it was the Indianapolis 500. And as you well know, we get cut off on TV after the first round. And so I did a lot of those games on radio. And I would choose radio over TV uh, any day of the week. The pure form of radio, especially in a big game or in the playoffs, and you've done, you know, as you said, 240 postseason games. There's just nothing like that, is there? I mean, doing a big game on radio, uh, to me, that was the the creme de la creme of what we do in this profession. Yeah, I, I know everybody in this day and age wants to be a TV guy, you know, guys that want to get into sports and sports broadcasting, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, whatever it is. I, I've always been a radio guy. I'll always be a radio guy. I, I went to television with the Bulls because they asked me to do so. Early in my career, when I was in Kansas City doing the Kings games, uh, when we did have TV, uh, they were simulcast. So I was really essentially doing a radio call on television. And in my early years in Philadelphia, same thing. There were simulcasts. And then uh, over time, you remember uh, teams that did simulcast got rid of them with the exception, I think, of uh, Phoenix, uh, Utah, and the Lakers until after uh, Chick had passed away. So I, I've always been a radio guy. I, I just think it is a – you mentioned the word pure, but I, I – and that's the, probably the an apt description of it. But it's much more – I think good radio broadcasters are much more creative than their counterparts. Just because on TV – and it doesn't mean the TV guys aren't as good or couldn't do radio, but just because there are so many working parts to uh, – to TV with producers and, and uh, analysts and, uh, you know, uh, people on the floor doing interviews. And there's they're just, you know, directors that all have a different idea of how to do it. When you sit down to do a, a radio game, um, it's just you and whoever's with you. If you've got an analyst, which none of us did in the early days of the NBA, we all worked alone, even if it was a simulcast. So, but it's just you and the game that's in front of you. And to me, that's really what broadcasting is about. And maybe the thing that we left out, which is most important, you and I have a face for radio, right? That's where we belong. Oh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, that's, 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 that's the other part of it, too. But I, I, I just never, you know, when I started my career in broadcasting and I got to the NBA, I just never uh, was one of these guys who said, geez, I, you know, I should be on TV or I need to get on TV or I'd rather do TV. I, I always found radio to be m- much more invigorating. You know, you're calling the shots. And, you know, whereas on TV, a producer and a director and everybody else, the graphics people are all back there, you know, kind of 
got their hand in it as well. Neil, 1975, the Golden State Warriors win a championship, and uh, Rick Barry was just incredible. But there was a role player on that team that was very meaningful to their run, and that's Derek Dickey. And little did I know, in 1975, the impact that he would have on my life as I teamed with him on TV for several years. And then after uh, Sacramento, he ended up being your analyst on radio, uh, I think, for the final three championship runs. And then he had a debilitating stroke and, and passed away in 2002. Uh, for the folks in Sacramento that remember Derek, and of course all the Warriors fans, I say Derek Dickey, and you say what? Oh, I mean, what a class, class guy. I mean, there, I, I've worked with an awful lot of uh, analysts over the course of my career, and for the most part, uh, they've been they've been great. But Derek, he just had a way about him, the way he treated other people, the way he treated his fellow broadcasters. He was he was uh, he was the best. A pleasure to a pleasure to work with, and I've had, you know, as I said, I've had a lot of a lot of good ones that, uh, and all of them have you know imparted something on my uh, broadcast career and to me personally. But Derek was a, a special special case, um, and he and I had a, a closeness. We played a lot of golf together. Uh, we ate out a lot together. He was over my house a lot, and uh, he was just a—he was a first-class individual. I hope you stayed away from that hot sauce. Oh, he carried that with him. What a knucklehead! <laughs> the man—we—we'd yep. man, we, go out to a nice restaurant somewhere, and he'd reach in his coat pocket and pull out a bottle of hot sauce <laughs> and put it on the yep. table. Oh. I'm like Derek, come on, come on now. But he was—he was a fun guy to—he oh, was him. a fun guy to be around. As you know, Derek was um, uh, really, truly one of my closest friends. And we we, we just, I, I say this without trying to, he was so special. And I will never forget the day that I found out that he suffered his stroke. And it was a game day. And he was very regimented. And he had a routine. Take me back to that day, you trying to get ready for a game sensing that something's wrong because you didn't hear from Derek and he always got to the game at the same time. And how I can't even imagine trying to get ready for a game and not knowing what was going on with Derek. Well, here, here was the, the odd thing about it was that most of the time, probably 90% of the time we rode to the game together because he lived fairly, we lived fairly close in downtown Chicago. So for some reason, I think he had, he had to do something. So he said, you know, I'll just, I'll see you at the game. He was usually there, you know, many hours before game time. And when he didn't show and didn't show, um, you know, I was concerned. Uh, our PR guy, Tim Hallam was concerned uh, because it just wasn't like Derek and we couldn't raise him on his cell phone. Um, so I called my wife and had her go over to Derek's condo. And she was actually the one who discovered Derek, uh, who was kind of unmoving. He had had this stroke. She got the manager of the uh, condo building to let her in. And uh, that's how we, uh, how we found out. So uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a tough night for everybody, Derek especially. But it was like, do I really even want to bother doing this game? So yeah, it was uh, it was actually my wife who walked in and found Derek. 
Derek had an unbelievable love for uh, golf, and uh, I'll never forget when I was able to see him. We were in Washington and had an off day, and I flew to Chicago, and I probably spent only 15 minutes uh, with him, and seeing him in that bed, uh, incapacitated, paralyzed on one side of his body, was uh, one of the, really, I mean, you know, you, you, you I, I can't adequately put in the words how sad that was, but I used to go to Derek's house once he was transported uh, back to Sacramento, and I would pick him up, Neil, and I would drive him to the golf course, and some days he could only hit five balls, but he didn't care. He was going to hit the ball one-handed, and he had that smile, and it was a half a smile because, again, half his body was was paralyzed. But the the drive in that man that he still wanted to go out and play golf, and we ended up eventually playing some golf, playing a couple of holes. He had it just a he had an amazing passion and drive in him, didn't he? Yeah, he. I mean, he. You know, he just enjoyed life. Yep. I mean, when I when I first met Derek, as I said, we played a lot of golf together, but I had no idea that one of his passions was cooking. Oh, yes. You know, and he, so he, so I said to him, I said to him, I said, well, why, why don't you come over and cook us a meal? I was kind of kidding around. He said, okay. He said, uh, why don't you buy the food and I'll, I'll come over and prepare it and cook it. So I said, well, you know, what's your specialty? And he said, well, whatever you, whatever you get. So I, I don't know. My wife went and got some chicken and stuff. I'll never forget the, the <laughs> right. doorbell rang and I went to the door and there's Derek and he's, he's got like luggage with him. And I'm like, I didn't invite you to move in with me. I just <laughs> asked you to come over and cook a meal. He said, no, these are my, my tools. And he pulls out, he opens his suitcase and he pulls out this thing that's got a hundred knives. I mean, sharpened, you know, I mean, every different kind of knife you could possibly see and forks and i mean you know stuff that a sous chef would use um oh my my goodness i was like i was taken aback i said is this stuff all yours or did you go to <laughs> go to some cooking store and rent it and he goes no it's mine and uh so he cooked us a meal and uh i mean we laughed and oh my gosh but he he had a zest for uh, life and, and, you know, whatever he enjoyed, whether it was golf or cooking or whatever it was. And he was, uh, he had a great sense of humor. He was just a, a neat, neat guy to be around. Hey, as long as he didn't bring one of his pet snakes with him with his cooking. Oh stuff. my God. Well, that was the other thing. I mean, the right. guy, I mean, I, I, you know, I've said all the nice things I can say. He was also nuts. Yeah. The guy, he was like, right. you know, I mean, I, I was always expecting him to like reach in his pocket and pull out a Wolverine or something. He, he, he was like, uh, he was crazy. He was crazy about, you know, stuff like that, but he had a great sense of humor. He was just, uh, he was a fun guy to travel with. Neil, uh, broadcasters very often uh, are defined by a couple of things. Uh, how do they call the games in the biggest of moments, the big plays and their signature call. And for you, it was kaboom. How did that start? That started at the University of Illinois with Nick Weatherspoon. I don't know if you remember Nick. He played uh, at a cup of coffee in the league. I think he played for the Washington Bullets at the time and uh, and then maybe for Cleveland for a brief time. But he was uh, Illinois' All-American. And uh, I don't know, one night I just it just came out. I was at the Assembly Hall in Champaign-Urbana. And, uh, he made a... a a long shot. I don't even think it was a three, 
I mean, I'm not even sure we had threes then. We didn't. I don't think it's definitely in college, but made a long shot and it just came out. I, I don't know why or how. And my uh, analyst looked at me like, oh my. So it just kind of stuck with me. And uh, frankly, it's to, to be honest with you, that, you know, kaboom or kaka kaboom is much more of a radio call than it is a TV call. So I used it way more as a radio broadcaster than I did as a TV broadcaster. You're talking about your career, and I believe the number was about 240 playoff games. And I think I've either read this somewhere or you and I were talking years ago. I can't remember. But the Jordan winning shot in Utah against Russell, is that your favorite moment, your favorite call of your career? I I think so, only because it was kind of – it signaled – like the end of the dynasty, the end of the era. Um, and so, I mean, right at that particular moment, I mean, I didn't know for sure that, you know, nobody was going to be coming back and that Phil was going to move on and uh, Michael was going to retire. But certainly, excuse me, it certainly that became kind of my uh, defining moment in terms of uh, – uh, highlights during a career. And I, you know, I, I did it long enough that you're going to have lots of games that you remember and finishes that you remember and big shots that you remember. Uh, and there's probably a lot of them that you forget too, but that one was kind of the, uh, the signature of that, uh, that Bulls dynasty. And so for that reason, uh, that, that was really my favorite. Yeah. You know, in the last dance, they chronicle how competitive Michael was all the time, regardless of what he was doing, but the practices. And I'm curious, with all the games that you did of Michael Jordan, I would imagine you've had so many other great memories watching him compete either in practice or whether you ever had a chance to play golf with him. I don't know if you had enough money in your pocket to go out and play golf with Michael Jordan, but his competitiveness and all your years of of covering the NBA that, that, you know, spanned – many decades, over 40 years. Was there ever anyone more competitive than Michael Jordan? There certainly wasn't anyone more competitive. And, you know, when you say, well, he was the most competitive ever, there have been so many great players in in the league and and guys who were competitive. But uh, Michael was so demonstrative about that side of him. And it came out, uh, I think, in that – the last dance, the documentary, um, how competitive he was, not just in, in playing basketball, but everything he did. I, I just can't imagine that there was anybody that was more competitive than he was. I mean, a lot. To, I, I don't think there's anybody in the league who doesn't want to win. Um, the question is how hard are they willing to work to make it, uh, you know, make it so that they win. And for Michael, that was just every day every single day, whether it was practice or a game. I mean, he was the same in practice as he was playing in a NBA game for the championship. I mean, so that was maybe the difference. You know, Michael just didn't take a day off. Was it a difficult decision for you to say now's the time? I mean, you're, you're in your early 70s. You're still sharp. You could still go on. I look at Al McCoy. I'm not saying you would be Al McCoy. We've watched Johnny Most. We've watched Chick Hearn. Marv is still, you know, going strong. Was was that – did it just feel right that now was the time? Did you give it a lot yeah, of thought? 
I did give it a lot of thought. I mean, I, I had thought about it for the last couple of years, as you know. Uh, two years ago, I, I told the Bulls that I was thinking about calling it a day and, you know, if, if I could cut back on my schedule and they would be willing to allow me to do that, I, I would do some games. If not, uh, and this was two years ago, um, and they, they said, okay, let's, let's cut back on the schedule. So they allowed me to do that. And then the next year I came in and I said, you know, it's not really fair to you guys to for me to miss games and, you know, you got to find replacements and all that. And they said, no, what, what do you want to do? And I said, well, uh, I only want to do a handful of road games, you know, close by games where I don't have to travel a lot. So I had kind of made up my mind and, and not doing every game the last couple of years kind of eased me into it a little bit. If I'd had to go cold turkey and just stop, I don't know if I would have been happy doing that. But they were kind enough to kind of let me ease my way out at my own pace. And so I knew at some time, and you mentioned Al McCoy, who does the Phoenix Suns games, and he and I are really close and have been for for a long, long time. And I, I admire him so much for forging ahead, you know, even at an advanced age, he'll kill me for saying that, but um, <laughs> right. he's still, he's still, you know, his faculties are great. It's amazing. Uh, he still, still calls the game great. Um, so, but for me, um, it was, enough was enough. I, I had done it, you know, a long, long time since 1976. And it just, it just felt like it was time to let it go and, you know, give somebody else a, a chance to uh, hopefully have some great years like I did, you know, whether it was in Chicago or Philly or Kansas City even with the old Kings and Cotton Fitzsimmons and that group. So it just felt like it was time. It really did. The other thing, Grant, is when you start, when you when you show up for a game and you look out on the floor and the, like the grandson of a guy who <laughs> right. games you did. I mean, right. it, it, I, I used to tell people, I said, you know, I did Ricky Green. Uh, I did his high school games when he was at Hirsch High School in Illinois. I did his high school games. I did some of his college games when he was at the University of uh, Michigan. And then I did his games as a pro. So, and then you start seeing guys who, that you, you did their games and their sons are now playing. In right. The league. Yeah. And you say, you know what? Maybe I've been at this long enough. That's enough. A couple of weeks ago, I had Mike Breen on the podcast and Mike's done five Olympiads. He did the NFL. Uh, he's been blessed to do a lot of different sports. You're retired. You had a great career doing the NBA. We talked about doing some football at Illinois and, and, and other uh, venues. Is there one sport or one thing that you wish you could have done that you didn't get a chance to? Not really. I, I, I did minor league baseball. I did obviously college football. Um, and I love doing, doing football. Um, as much as I love the sport of baseball, I was, it, it was too, uh, too slow for me, I guess, uh, doing baseball. But uh, the one sport that I never did was hockey. And I know I, and there are so many great hockey broadcasters. I mean, I, to be honest with you, Grant, 
a lot of in in my kind of formative years uh, doing NBA games, I would listen to hockey broadcasters uh, to get their phrasing and timing. Um, and uh, I, I have the greatest respect for guys like Pat Foley, who does the Blackhawks here great. in Chicago, is is wonderful. But I I got more stuff from hockey broadcasters that I used during basketball than I did from basketball guys. So uh, hockey would have been the one. But you know what? I'm not sure I could have done hockey. You could have. You could have I, done hockey. I, you could have. I, I guess I, I never really tried, um, but I again, as I said, I think if you listen to a really good hockey guy, I was fortunate. I had Gene Hart in Philadelphia, and then uh, Pat here in Chicago. Sure. Um, and I mean, those guys. I, I was mesmerized. Yes, honest to God. Yes, whether and and whether I was a hockey fan or not, I was mesmerized by their broadcast. I did the same thing growing up. I used to listen to Marv Albert growing up on Long Island, and he was obviously the voice not only of the Knicks but of the Rangers. And I was captivated by him. And I was blessed to do uh, six years of college hockey on a Division One level, and I fulfilled my dream of doing some NHL games. But when I was up Bowling Green, I used to listen to Dan Kelly do the St. Louis Blues at night on KMOX. Yeah, he was another good one because he was great. And you know what? I'm glad you said that um, because you know I always tell young aspiring broadcasters: first of all, don't limit yourself to one sport. But not only do you want to listen to broadcasters in a sport that you love listen to other sports you pick up different nuances and things of that nature and i'm glad i'm glad you said that because i've done this for a long time i've never ever heard anyone say to me that they listened to hockey announcers that helped them announce basketball but i did the exact same thing as you did and pat foley i mean is there anyone better calling a goal than pat foley he's unbelievable no yeah he's 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 great but, but just the flow of the game, sure. because it's probably, of all the games, it's probably the closest to a pro basketball game um, with the speed and everything else, even though there's even more speed in hockey and more changes at end. And, um, but I, uh, you know, I would, I'm, I'm glad you said that because uh, people used to, uh, you know, when I said that to somebody, they'd think I was crazy. I, they'd say, what can you take from a hockey game? I said, well, a lot of things. I mean, not only little phrases that they use, but the, the timing and the mm-hmm. way they phrase things and the speed with which they have to do it, to me, was uh, it was great. It was great. It really helped me in my, in my broadcast career. And I'm like you. I would tell, you know, aspiring basketball or hockey or baseball broadcaster, hey, listen to some of the other sports because you can take something from them. The, the way a guy phrases something, the timing, when to, when to talk and not to talk, um, you know. So, uh, yeah, all of that is that hockey would be the one that, uh, you know, maybe I wish I would have done. I always was a little bit afraid of, <laughs> of doing hockey because the guys I listened to were so good at it. And uh, so, but, yeah, that's, uh, that's it's interesting that you did the same thing I did. Final thing for you, Neil, we talk about broadcasting that began in the 70s and culminated last year, and you look at the Michael Jordan run, and you were there for five of the six championships, but you mentioned some of the other stops along the way. Can you? Is there a period of time that you look back on your career and go, that was my favorite, that, that was the best? I mean, I know people would say, gee, Grant, of course it's going to be Michael Jordan, but maybe not. But what was the best – 
the best well, part of be your on, career? To be honest with you, there were kind of three phases to it. And, and the one phase for five years was doing the Kansas City Kings, who, as you know, became the Sacramento Kings. And I had, I had done one year in Philadelphia. That was the year 1976-77 when they lost to Portland in the finals. So my first year in the league, I was calling the NBA finals which was, you know, again, right place, right time, luck of the draw, whatever. But I then went to Kansas City, and those were some of the most enjoyable years uh, I ever had as a broadcaster. First of all, in those, in those days, the, the league was not what it is today, which is a, a giant, giant corporation. In those days, there were, if you had six or seven people in the front office, that was a lot. Uh, we traveled 12 players, two coaches, a trainer, and a broadcaster. That was it. And, you know, people go, well, didn't you have an analyst? I said, no, no analyst, no engineer, no, no. nothing. No, you set up everything you, yourself. You, we yep. carried carried the equipment, yep. set it up. If it was a simulcast, a guy came out of a truck in the back and said, hey, uh, are you the Kings guy? Yeah. Well, at such and such a time, go over here to this spot and stand there with a stick mic and do the open for TV. And that's how it was done. So a lot of times <laughs> I had a pregame show with Cotton Fitzsimmons and I would take the pregame show, but I was never good with a stopwatch. So the pregame show was supposed to be three minutes, let's say, and I would go like 325 or 330. And so I would wait to start the radio pregame show which i had taped and i would hit the button and then i would run out on the floor and take this stick mic wow and do the open do the open for tv well a lot of times while i was doing the open for tv i'd hear the tape behind me going <laughs> whoosh, 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 because there was nothing on it they were just sitting around so so oh. it was i mean those were crazy days but yep. in those days I mean, you know, everybody, everybody, we flew commercially, Sure, you know, buses, you got your own luggage, you did, you did everything. And those were some of the uh, most fun times that I had those five years in Kansas City. By the time I, I got back to, to Philadelphia uh, in 1982, things had kind of changed. The league had, you know, kind of solidified itself and was becoming bigger and, and you were guys were starting to think about chartering and the traveling parties were much bigger and the organizations were much bigger. But those five years I spent in Kansas City were were great for me. I mean, really, really fun years. Got to know, still have a lot of good friends among the guys who played on those teams. You know, the late Cotton Fitzsimmons was a dear friend. The late Frank Hamblin was a dear friend. So I had, uh, those. those were some you know, just some memories that I have of early in my career and how much fun it was to do NBA basketball. Well, and by the way, and by the way, when you flew somewhere and you went to the hotel, the the official stayed in the same hotel as you were staying. Yep. The, the other team that had just played there because there was no flying out after games would be there. So it was like one big family, you know, the NBA uh, and and now the size has gotten you know it's gotten so big and become so successful and such a worldwide 
phenomenon that it's uh, just totally different than the way it was in the early days. Yeah, sitting at the bar drinking until 3, 3.30 in the morning and then having a 5 a.m. wake-up call because you had to be on the first flight out the next morning. <laughs> I, I used to I, I used. To, I used to sleep on the couch in the in the lobby of the hotel, so I wouldn't so I wouldn't miss yeah. wouldn't miss the bus. <laughs> hey, you know what, Neil? Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's been so great over the years talking to you, and uh, obviously uh, our connections, you know, with uh, having our, our dear friend and Derek and everything that we went through with that. But um, you'll be missed. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough. I really hope that uh, you enjoy your retirement and keep on playing golf and stay healthy, my friend. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I will, and thank you. Thank you so much, Grant. We'll stay in touch. We sure will. That's uh, Neil Funk. Great stuff right there. And if you don't like that, uh, one of the real treasures of the NBA over 40 years, 29 years with the Chicago Bulls. Think about all the great players. Can you imagine coming into the league as a broadcaster and you have Dr. J to announce every night and then later on in your career, five championships watching Michael Jordan play uh, every night. All right, each and every podcast, we are going to do a little Q&A, and you can ask me a question by just going to crowdquestion.com. That's crowdquestion.com, and maybe I will answer your question right here on if you don't like that. All right, Danny says, what is your favorite sports debate, and what's your take on it? I love debating NFL quarterback play. I love it. It's probably my favorite thing to do. And my take on it is this. I don't really get caught up in numbers and stats. I don't care about numbers and stats. I care about how is the quarterback going to play in big games and in the playoffs. That's why I was never a fan of Carson Palmer, and I was never high on Donovan McNabb. I don't care what you do during the regular season. I care about what you do in the biggest of games, which are in the playoffs. Give me a quarterback that is going to shine that has the moxie, that can take his team 80 yards in a minute and 45 seconds in a playoff game when the game is tied or they're down by a point or down by four, that's the quarterback that I want. So I love debating that. It's a great question, Danny, but that is my favorite uh, topic to debate. All right, Luke, so for what you do, okay, right now, your podcast, Do you like doing your podcast more? And is there anything you miss from radio? Well, first of all, I actually have really enjoyed doing the podcast now that I'm in my second month. I'm enjoying it more than I thought I would. I love talking to people like Neil Funk. And if you followed all my podcasts, I have Charles Barkley on and Mike Breen and Sean Salisbury and my childhood friend Chris Russo. And I can go on and on. I love getting in the real in-depth I don't have any commercials that I have to break for five minutes like we do on radio. Uh, I'm a one-man band on the podcast, so I conduct the interview the way I want. The thing I miss the most from radio are the phone calls because I'm a big believer in interaction with my audience, and that's why I'm doing Q&A on CrowdQuestion because I love to interact with the audience. And as we had this conversation, I'm exploring ways to do a live show So I can take phone calls, so I can interact with my audience. So, yeah, I do love my podcast a lot. I love the length. I can go on for as long as I want. I don't have to break for a commercial. But I do miss the interaction where I can take a lot of phone calls. So that's the one thing I miss the most. All right, this is from Corey. Favorite and least favorite arena to do play-by-play. 
My favorite of all time, and you just heard it, was the old Chicago Stadium. There was nothing like it. Obviously, being from New York and growing up and my father taking me to so many events at Madison Square Garden, there's really nothing like doing a game at Madison Square Garden. First of all, they put you literally right at center court across from the scorer's table and the benches, and it's just unbelievable. It's just a thrill every time I walk into Madison Square Garden. It's probably the thing I'm going to miss the most uh, about not uh, doing uh, games anymore. I just loved it. I absolutely love going into Madison Square Garden. My least favorite arena, you're going to find this as a cop-out. I didn't really have a least favorite arena for this reason. And Joe Buck taught me this. And Joe had it taught to him by his father, Jack. I am not a fan of broadcasters that complain of where they're broadcasting a game from. And I don't mind if they complain privately. I really don't. I don't like to hear a broadcaster on the air complaining publicly about where they're broadcasting a game from. Because if you had told me as a kid, or if you had told me in high school, or if you had told me in college that I would be doing a professional sporting event and complaining about my location in the venue, I would have just said, well, that's never going to happen. I've never lost sight in my 32 years of announcing NBA basketball how blessed, how fortunate, and how lucky I was. And the last thing I was going to do would be bitch and complain about where my broadcast location was in the arena. And Joe Buck, when he came on with me months ago on the show in Sacramento, said that his dad said, hey, son, fans don't give a damn whether you're warm or you're cold or you can see or you can't see. They're listening to you. They're they're watching the game. They don't want to hear you complain, all right? Uh, a lot of people unemployed, people making minimum wage, you know, whatever the case may be. They don't want to hear you complain that you're doing a professional sporting event and aren't happy with your location in the venue. Um, I didn't really have a least favorite venue. Um, uh, that's a great question. Maybe, gosh, uh, I really didn't have one. I didn't really have a least favorite venue. I guess the sports arena in L.A. would be my least favorite when the Clippers played there because it was just an absolute dump and there was never anyone at the games. Like you'd have 2,000, 3,000 people at the games, uh, but that's it. Other than that, I didn't really have one. Great questions, Danny, Luke, Corey. Again, just go to crowdquestion.com, and uh, I'll be happy to answer your question right here on If You Don't Like That. Good stuff. Good questions today. It's time for Rant. 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 Today's rant is brought to you by New Works Plumbing, locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Leak detection, water line repair, plumbing repair, bathroom plumbing, repiping for Kytec and copper pipes. New Works Plumbing is a full-service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. New Works Plumbing has experienced technicians on call 24-7. For all of your plumbing needs, check out newworksplumbing.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. All right, people still talking about that beatdown in Tampa on Sunday night. Sean Payton brings in a Saints, Drew Brees, and company roll over Tampa. It was like men against boys in that game. Now, am I surprised that the Bucs lost at home? No. Am I surprised that they got beat that badly? Yes. But I don't think the Bucs are really that good. I watched them the week before against the Giants, and they were lucky to beat a bad New York Giants team. But here's what I want to talk about on my rant today. Jameis Winston the backup quarterback now to Drew Brees, formerly the starting quarterback in Tampa. The Bucs could not wait to get rid of Jameis Winston. So after the game, you would have thought that Winston had started thrown for 400 yards and four touchdowns. What's this eating a W crap? Like, where did that come from? 
But that's Jameis Winston on the field when Drew Brees is getting interviewed and in the locker room after the game. Now, I have no problem with Winston being excited. He should be excited. His team just won a big football game. They might be on their way to an NFC championship and a Super Bowl. But, I mean, stop it already, would you? Eating a W? What do you know about Ws? The only time you had anything to do with Ws was when you were at Florida State. Stop it already. Grow up, young man, would you please? I mean, really? What, what the heck is eating a W? Come on now. Now, back to the game. And, and the Saints. How about Drew Brees? Does this guy look to you like he's someone in his 40s? Maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the year. Half, half a season ago, a lot of injuries that we can't forecast. But you think about what happened with the Minneapolis miracle and then the following year with that horrible, horrible call in the NFC Championship game against the Rams. Maybe this is Sean Payton's year. Maybe this is Drew Brees' year. A lot of people think it's his last year. Boy, what a way to go out if the Saints could end up on top. But Jameis Winston, stop it already with this eating a W crap. And that's my rant for today. Hey, once again, my thanks to the great Neil Funk for joining us. Coming up on If You Don't Like That on Friday, my guest, Charles Davis of CBS Sports. What a great job he's doing this year working with Iron Eagle. Look forward to that conversation on Friday. And again, folks, as always, if you don't like that, with Grant Napier saying thanks very much. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.